Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Osiris. Welcome to Wheels Off, a show about the messy reality of the creative life. I'm Rhett Miller. That's when it got wheels off. We started up and we ain't gonna stop. Oh, I like you, like it not. That's when it got wheels off. Sarah Heppola is a writer from Dallas, Texas. We both grew up kind of in the same neighborhood. Um, I'm older than she is, for what it's worth. But uh, So I didn't really know her when we were kids. But once we were both young adults, um, I became aware of her and her, her wit and her uh, insight. And when her book Blackout came out, um, it was well-timed for me personally. But I think I would have loved it if, even if it didn't. Um, serve such a sort of purpose in my life when it when it came around. It's a, a memoir about her own battles with drinking and um, her sobriety, her hard won sobriety. Um, she's written about you know all these all these crazy things for Texas Monthly and Salon and Elle and Bloomberg and. New York Times and um, NPR's Fresh Air will have her on all the time. So she's tackling, um, you know, all these unlikely subjects. But the way she approaches them with such humanity, with such a sense of humor, with with such a a kind sort of non-judgmental eye is what makes her so special, in my opinion. Um, I really do think Sarah Heppola is a great talent. Um, I can't wait to see, and we'll discuss this in our conversation, what her next book is going to be like. Um, And I've known since I started making these wheels off um, recordings that I would be interviewing Sarah at some point. I kind of wanted to wait. I wanted to get to a point where I felt comfortable doing these things and so I could do justice. I think I did that. I've tried. Lord knows. Um, she makes me laugh. Um, it was a lot of fun talking to her. We got we got a little bit sidetracked here and there. Um, I think towards the end of the interview, there's a, a big F-bomb. And God, I'm trying to remember. There's um, something that we said that I, right after the F-bomb that seemed very um, adult. 
Anyway, if you're listening to Wheels Off with an eight-year-old, nah, that's maybe that's on you. But um, this really is just a, a very sweet, insightful, wholesome conversation with an old friend. Please welcome to Wheels Off, Sarah Heppala. Welcome to Wheels Off, Sarah Heppala. I'm so glad to speak to you. Thank you for joining me today. I'm so excited to be here. This is so great. Um, For the edification of our listeners, from where are you joining us? From Dallas, Texas. Dallas, Texas. Are you still in the Swiss Avenue? Oh, no, you know, I'm sorry. Let's not pinpoint <laughs> your exact GPS location. Somewhere nice. I live in a historic district. Uh, <laughs> I am a single woman, you know, I do live alone. Um, no, I, I, so I live in the Lakewood area and it's really beautiful. It's over by Lower Greenville, which I know is an area you know really well. Um, you know, Dallas is not a town known for its um, historic roots, but the place that I live at has a lot of old houses and big magnolia trees and a lot of walkable areas. So it's always felt like it's always had a real feeling of home for me. Yeah, I I, I miss Dallas. And I, I think that that's a weird thing because, you know, if uh, some, you, talk, you speak with someone like our mutual friend, Robert Wolanski, the history in Dallas is rich and and sometimes pretty crazy and interesting. And yet we pave over it as if we're, you know, that's our job. Maybe it is some people's job. Well, um, you know, you use the word pave over it. And I feel like that's like the, the key verb um, because, you know, Dallas is this place of constant renovation and reconstruction and super highways. And there is not, really a spot of beauty in the city that some enterprising developer won't decide to to build a road through. <laughs> um, and it's one of the things that's allowed the city to grow. Did you ever watch the opening shots of the show Dallas? Mm, boy, not since I was a kid. You should go back to YouTube and watch the opening shots and see all those ranch lands. Like see the the helicopter shot move out over that city and it's all empty. And the last, you know, 30, 40 years has just been a giant project of filling that in with people in highways. <laughs> um, all right. Well, look, we're not here to uh, lament former Dallas beauty or whatever. We're here to celebrate you and pick your brain. So, Sarah, what uh, creative project are you working on at the moment? And how does it light you up? So I have a few you know, I've been working on my second book for several years now. And I always knew that the book was going to be about dating and being single in my 40s and not having gotten married or had kids, even though I, I kind of wanted that path. But I found myself on this very unexpected path of, of singlehood. And I saw a lot of books that were kind of like, yeah, we're single or like, no, we're single. And I was like, no, I'm just ambivalent. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't know what I think. And that's, you know, the pull towards me is always like, like, like what pulls me towards work is trying to understand something that I can't really understand. That's why I need to spend years with it. Um, and so this question of like, was it a gift? Was it a curse? Did I screw up? Did I luck out? Like, what, what is this? And it's obviously this middle life reckoning, but through me, it comes through the lens of 
not having become a mother, not having become a wife. So I've been working on that for, for years now and it lights me up and it crashes me down and it, it kills me and builds me anew again. I mean, I've just been working with this for years, but it is probably the project that, that, um, that feeds me. You also, it's funny, you also write um, like a number of smaller pieces for magazines and newspapers and websites, outlets, as it were. Um, it's, how do you balance that? That's a, that's a lot of work. Just I'm really constantly. not, I don't, is the answer. <laughs> I'm overwhelmed all the time. I'm stressed out. I feel like I'm constantly failing every project that I take on. Oh. Um, cause I'm such a yes person. And then, oh, and I'm an overpromiser. I'm the worst overpromiser. <laughs> uh, cause I'm just like, yeah, we're going to do this by next week. And then next week comes, I haven't even started it. It's the worst. Mm. So how do I balance this? You know, I mean, I try my best, but I, I will, I will tell you what, what other people, what all these other things do is they do balance me. By which I mean that my writing has primarily been about my personal life, my choices, my decisions. I try to tell small personal stories about myself that can tell you something universal about the world. But uh, but it's hard to get around the fact that this is a very fancy way to say navel gazing. Um, I write about my own choices. And so one of the great things about these other projects is that it gets me out of myself. I desperately need that. I need that. Uh, therapeutically, psychologically, spiritually, creatively. Um, I had a gig with Texas Highways for a while where they were sending me to these random spots in Texas. And it was like, what's going on in Corsicana? I had no idea. And then you find out and you meet all these people and you open doors in the world that you never would have opened. Um, I think a lot of my work has been just me drilling into my past and going around in the same circles. And there's a lot of value in that. But some of my favorite work has just been uh, sudden somebody being like, write about uncertain Texas. And I'm like, what is uncertain Texas? And then I get to find out. I love that. I, I think about the, um, the piece you did about drinking on campuses, uh, specifically for Texas Monthly, right? Yeah. And, um, and, that piece made me cry. I mean, this is just such a good example of, I think maybe which uh, maybe there's a, there's a thing that you do where it's an intersection of the navel gazing. You described your word, not mine. I think that what you do is way above just is navel gazing, but there's an intersection where that meets the, the larger world. And I think that, that the gift you have in, in that spot is, unparalleled like you're incredible at that at taking your own experience and applying it to a larger group of people and that's incredible I think that happens a lot in blackout um maybe unintentionally because it's such a personal book but um I'm super excited to see this next book I know you've agonized with it for a bunch of years do you feel like you're I mean I don't want to ask how close is it to being done but I mean how close is How close is it to being started? <laughs> I'm going to start it next week, right? <laughs> uh, no. Um, well, I think this is important to talk about, actually, because one of the most painful questions for me these days is when people say, how's the book? 
Mm-hmm. It's, it's actually painful. I will, I will go into social situations and do leaps and, you know, trying to get people to not ask that question. Mm-hmm. Like what dance can I do that you're not going to ever settle down and say, how's that book? <laughs> oh. Because it's very, it's, it's very painful to say, I'm still working on it. And I've been still working on it. And people are kind of like, oh, that's so weird. I saw you two years ago. <laughs> I mm. saw you two years ago. And you're still working on that book. And it's like, yeah, that is actually how it works. Um, the, uh, I think that I, I have written two different drafts of this book. Both of them were 600 pages. Oh, my God. And they were different. And those 600 pages represented, I don't really even want to tell you how many pages that didn't end up there. I remember telling this to Ben Fountain, who is one of my favorite writers here in Dallas, a really beautiful novelist. And I said it to him like I was, you know, like this martyr on a cross. Like, can you believe I wrote two full drafts of my book? And he was like, yeah. It's really not until the fifth draft that the crocodile starts to open its mouth. (laughs) And I was like, fifth draft? How do you do that? What are you doing? (laughs) That must take such patience. And so you like, okay, there's a thing that happens with my job where I have to tell myself a story. All these people left their homes and got babysitters and paid all this money to come to my show or logged in and paid the money online or whatever it is. So I'm telling myself this story to like, they want to be here. They want to like you this, you know, it's like this constant narrative going in my head. That's like a, it's, it's a half attaboy, half just like um, guilt trip. Right. And, um, I wonder what kind of narrative you have to do in your own brain. What kind of story you have to tell yourself to just keep yourself going day after day, because you've done great. You've made work. You've, you know, you will continue to put books out. This book will come out. How do you do this? That's incredible. Yeah. I, I think one of the, I, I, I remember being so insecure when I was writing blackout, just like I can, I can't write a book. I don't know how to write a book. And I was very convinced that if I wrote a book, I would be at least have the knowledge that I could write a book. But I learned that I only knew that I could write that book. <clears throat> That's the only book I knew how to write. And so I had to keep learning anew. And so your story about needing all the attaboys and stuff like that's really, that hits me because see, I'm really a creature of validation like deeply, deeply. And I went into journalism, I think, because I could have been one of these Emily Dickinson types that just wrote and then kept something in her drawer and never showed it to anybody. But the deadline is what forced me to give it over. The deadline was like, you've got to put it in the world. And then once I did that and I got through the terror, then it was like, oh, this comes with all this validation. And it's like, oh, this is great. Like, And so I got really hooked on the the metabolism of write a story and because I wrote for Salon, which was an online magazine, it's still an online magazine. Um, you know, you write in the morning, you edit it that night, you publish it the next day. The praise comes in. It's like this two three day life cycle of terror and joy just injected into your bloodstream. And now I'm trying to reorient to a metabolism of years you know, not a life cycle of days, but a life cycle of years. So your question about what is the internal monologue? I mean, what I 
the internal monologue has to be, for, for me, it's this. I'm following a thread and I know better than anyone else that it goes somewhere that'll be interesting. I have no control over how people receive this. Whether it's going to be a bestseller, whether it's not going to be a bestseller, whether it's going to tank, all of that stuff that makes me crazy is out of my control. And I hate that. And then I re, you know, I, I started seeking out interviews with other writers. Like, like I learned that Jonathan Franzen took seven years to write the corrections. And so I just started Google, like um, looking on, on iTunes for like all the interviews with him. And I just would go through days where I just in my downtime, I would just listen to Jonathan Franzen talk about the, the years it took to write the corrections. And, and he would tell a story about um, uh, turning in a draft and being like, I'm done. And then realizing that it was not done at all. And he only used about 15% of that book. Oh, and he took another year or two to write a whole new version. And I know Jonathan Franzen is a very divisive figure. And, and I happen to just love the corrections. I just think it's one of these big, immersive, big hearted books that I just lose myself in. So um, I think hearing, uh, honestly, I think we all want to post the success stories. But what I need are the long not success stories <laughs> where people don't give up, you know, or the eventual success. The success is, is finishing it. Yeah. I have, you had projects that you worked on for a long time and then you just abandoned. Oh my God. Well, especially with writing, which is, you know, my, my dream sideline gig, but um, yeah, sure. Even with music. So, I mean, what, what is, what is my job except just a, like a trail of, unfinished, discarded, unwanted, unloved songs just behind me like rose petals. That's beautiful. Thanks. So I love, I love thinking about your trajectory just because, you know, I've, I've known you for such a long time and I've gotten to see so many stages of Sarah Heppola. And, um, but I wonder about the, the earliest stage. And I know actually that if there's anybody listening that hasn't read Blackout, it's so freaking great. And you get into this obviously in Blackout because it's, you know, you, you go so deep into your, you know, younger years, but I wonder if you could elucidate for us the moment at which you realized you were going to become a writer. Like is, was there an epiphany moment that you remember? Yeah, I was uh, in seventh grade and the, for some reason, this was in drama class that the drama teacher asked us to write a horror story. Halloween was coming up. And we got like two class periods to do it. And um, I had been reading a lot of Stephen King. I was just absolutely immersed in those in those books, thick books. And and when we read them to the class, everybody else's story was like very short. And it was like there was a scary pumpkin <laughs> or like there was a, there was a ghost. Um, and my story, first of all, was super long. And it was about this woman who gives birth to the devil. And then she has to stab her own baby and she's writing the story from prison. And so the whole story is a confessional. 
Oh now, uh, let me say, I, I, I clearly stole this framing from Shawshank Redemption, uh, which is a, it's a story in the four, uh, four seasons or different seasons um, that's called Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. And it is a, a letter written from prison. But the but the story itself, which is nominally Rosemary's Baby, I, I, I didn't know that story. Uh, my mother, who is a therapist, was like, oh, this is an interesting story about... <laughs> The mother that gives birth to the devil and stabs it in the heart. Anyway, that was really intense for a 12-year-old. And it was very much out of, like, everybody was just like, what? And the um, I really think that story would have gotten me on a watch list now. Like, <laughs> like totally sent to the principals. But bless their hearts, they... Um, they really were very kind to me that the teacher was like this, this young girl is going to be published by the time she's 30. And I was like, that is so old. <laughs> Cause I, I did have this sense of myself as like a wonderkind mm-hmm. and uh, I was going to be famous uh, before then. And I just want to add that around that time, it was probably about a year later that a friend of mine dragged me to a show at the Arcadia to see a young, like 14 or 15 year old musician who was super cute, I have to add, uh, singing songs. And that was my first introduction to Rhett Miller. Uh, I think I'm, I hope to have the earliest introduction to your work uh, of your. Of any wheels off guest. Yes, I hope so. Unless I interview my mom, you're probably. Uh, yeah, exactly. 14 <laughs> feels pretty young. Wow. Uh, so I wonder, though, when you gave them the story about the, the birthing of the devil and subsequent baby murder, did you get validation then? Was there like, I mean, they yeah, must, no when idea. she said, that's awesome. You have no idea. So much validation. You, uh, by the way, the title of the story was What's the Matter with Andrea? So I just want you to. That's so crazy. And how old were you? 12. Oh, my God. I love this. Of course, the, of course you did. Yeah. Yeah. I really, I think one of my goals for my life, the trajectory of my life is that I would get into wild eyed fiction again, instead of this place where I only write about what happened to me because when I was younger, nothing had happened to me. And so, I mean, I just made stuff up and, and because I was reading this imaginative fiction, it, it, you know, the things I was writing about were just crazy. Um, I, I just remember having, you know, stories like, can you cut off a person's head? Of course you can. Like, and I would just have a scene where they'd be beheaded. You know, it, it, it was really wild stuff that I've never gotten back to, but yes, it was so validating. They, you know what they did? They had me go around to other classrooms and read it like a touring musician <laughs> at the age of 12. I was gigging. Amazing. What's the matter with Andrea? Oh, you know what else? I sold it to someone. Somebody in my class asked <laughs> to buy a copy of it, like a mix CD. And I, you know, rem- keep in mind, this is like 1987. So I wrote it out by hand. It's got like white out and the places, you know, crusty things where I've got to write over it. I, I sat down one night and wrote it out for her and I sold it to her for five bucks. Do you remember, did you do any edits as you were rewriting it for her? Did you fix anything? Like other sentence could be tighter. That's a great question. <laughs> You're just like, I'm getting paid. No, I thought, I, I think, I think I just was like in the mindset of like, I'm getting paid, but, but <laughs> I will say that um, I, I'm pretty sure the original transcript, cause I still have it, has some edits on it. 
I like, love that. like I've, I've marked stuff out and I'm like tighter. What if you what if, <laughs> could be sharper? What if you had just kept handwriting like it's the Gutenberg Bible, like you're just creating <laughs> it's over and over again. Oh my god, it, I love might, it. honestly, it might be my masterwork. That may be the finale right before I fall into the grave. I'm just like, <laughs> what's the matter with Andrea? Boom. <laughs> Andrea, the name is so makes me so happy. So um, do you ever think about now, because you do so much work that's kind of roughly in this journalistic memoir world, right? Do you ever think about going back when you're feeling frustrated or blocked? I don't know if that's a word you recognize. Um, and just like doing like, I'm going to write this crazy short story. Like, do you ever think about going back to fantastic fiction like that again? It's just, it's been one of the kind of <clears throat> strange I don't want to quite say heartbreaking things, but like poignant things about the last several years is that I, it's almost like a frequency. I can't, I don't know how to tune into anymore. And so what I did once, um, when I get really blocked, I I do a couple different things. One, uh, I once just wrote kind of like random stories I would tell at parties. I just like wrote the prompts on slips of paper and I put them in a mason jar and every morning I would pull another one out and um and so I did that that was but that's all essayistic and so then I tried to do I tried to do just I'm gonna give myself nouns and then I'm gonna write a story about them so it would be like puppy dog and I would just be like I got nothing (laughs) I got nothing I don't have anything what's a puppy I don't, I mean, and that is such a far cry from the little girl that's like, can I cut off his head? Let's cut off his head. And I actually, I actually thought about going back and getting my MFA uh, 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 several years ago when I was, it was after blackout and I was just really confused about what I was going to do. And I was blocked and I was like, I'm going to go back and, and study fiction. And then, uh, cause I wanted to, to, to learn that frequency again. And then my friends who had been in MFA programs, and this is no offense against them, but I will just tell you what they told me, which was do not do that. <laughs> it will lock you up so much faster than it will free you because of the workshopping process and the different um, voices in your head that I would just be better off trying to think of a story about a puppy dog, you know, with, you know, whatever I was doing. This is the reason I never studied music theory. It's the idea, the idea, and maybe this is just a way of being lazy. It's the idea that um, knowing the rules, suddenly you have all these rules like that, but that's its own problem. That's right. I mean, um, and and that you introduce the prison of self-consciousness. Mm. And once you do that, you know, for me, whatever I'm doing when I sit in front of a laptop, which is where I do 99% of my writing, it's only about connecting to my voice. It's trying to find some connecting... It always feels sort of like an electric stream. I don't know if this is what music is for you, like a zone that you enter. And then there's sort of like a, an energy field, uh, energy field, ener- uh, electricity stream that travels through you. Yes. And so I'm trying to get to the place where I'm not thinking at all. And so the more that you introduce sort of theory or how it should be done or what Leslie Jameson did to do it better, um, 
everything is going to disrupt that flow. And then I'm going to be gummed up and it's going to be me like me with the puppy dog, just like, I don't know where to start. And that, you know, everything in my creative process is trying to keep me from that place. It's incredible how often this comes up, the idea of creation as, um, uh, as a, as a form of meditation, like you're trying to stop the noise of your mind so that you can let this beautiful thing in you out. Yes. Yes. I mean, it took me a while to realize that a lot of what I was trying to do was that kind of meditation, meaning to shut my brain down. This was absolutely what drinking was Mm -hmm. for me. Drinking was as much as I was sort of moving toward adventure and thrill. I mean, at some fundamental level, it was about trying to be still in my own body and and power down my mind so that I could just kind of feel and let things out. This is why I drank before I was writing, because drinking was a prep. It was almost like preparation for meditation. The way yoga is preparation for meditation. Drinking was my yoga. Uh, by the way that's going to be the poll quote it it was (laughs) and and uh what i've learned what i've had to learn after i quit drinking was all the other ways to prepare yourself for meditation which are you know walks and long run music is beautiful for this i mean for me the best thing to do is write when i'm first up. It's almost like I just don't have the energy to get out in front of myself and fight with myself. Um, and so meditation is, yeah, you're, you're, it's the weirdest thing at the moment when you're supposed to be kind of most sharp, you're looking for that meditative state. Uh, and the question is how do you get yourself there and how do you keep yourself there? So you, you've been sober now for a decade? 11, yeah. 11 yeah. years. That's fantastic. And, and, and I know that you, um, well, you've just described it, like the ways that you try and, and, and now do the thing that you used to do with booze, um, with running, yoga. Like, I know that, so I'm I just, just. I just want to say I've never run in my life and it would be really <laughs> I know I used that verb earlier. I was speaking more expansively and I just had this moment of like, your friends are going to listen to this and be like, who do you think you are? Agreed. I'm a, I'm a similar non-runner. I'm going to blame my fast walker. (laughs) (laughs) But, but I do wonder like, um, you know, so what, what have you figured out? What are the healthy ways that you move past the thing, the noise in your head, the voices in your head that try and shout you down, the internally generated obstacles. I mean, we started off this conversation just now by talking about those and how just prevalent they are in all of ours, but yours in particular, uh, minds and lives. I just, what secrets have you figured out? I mean, I feel like I'm in constant low level acquisition mode of like how to increase the, you know, the number of answers that I have to that. Um, probably one of the best things I've learned is, uh, this is really hard. When I'm stuck, go take a walk. When I'm stuck, get out. See, I want to do the opposite. 
I want to sit in front of the laptop and try to solve it. And I will start getting into a place of despair that is really ugly. And once I start getting into that despair, then I'm, I'm swept away. The energy stream has taken me in the opposite direction. I'm, I'm gone and I'm going to need my friends and some cupcakes and all these other things to sort of like get me back. And, and so it would be adult of me. This is really like a note to self right now. <laughs> um, it would be very adult of me to know and to trust that when that kind of lockup happens, the best thing I can do is leave my laptop. And, you know, I really try to fill my voices with people, fill my voices, fill my ears with people that inspire me. You know, I can remember listening the, the, to the first Wheels Off interview, actually, and, and saying to, I remember texting you afterward, I was like, Rhett, the voices, the voices, they're coming for me, you know, because you had been speaking with someone about that. And <clears throat> I, I don't think that there's any way for, there's no fix for each of us, because these are the demons that we face. But I do think that hearing from other people about the fact that they wrestle with that, and that it doesn't necessarily have any reflection on the outcome. Like people can be like tortured about a song that turns out to be brilliant. And people can be like, this is kick ass and it's terrible. So that your internal monologue, you just start to kind of like, it's like, okay, you try to listen to it. And it's like, thanks for sharing. But like, there is no authority in that voice. Right? Yes. I think that's the answer. And honestly, now I've done 85 of these interviews. And it's the thing that that makes me want to always keep doing them is because it just reminds me that we all struggle with that. We all beat ourselves up. We all have we all have this, you know, wall of self-criticism that we have to knock down like the Kool-Aid man every single time we want to make something. Here's my question for you though. Do you think we need it? In other words, I once told a friend of mine, I need to get rid of that voice. And she was like, no, you don't. That voice is going to make you sharper and better. You need to tolerate that voice. What are your thoughts on that? That's super interesting. And it reminds me of a New York Times article I read a couple of years ago where they talked about the importance of being nervous, of, of um, pre-performance anxiety, um, because it focuses you, right? It, it, it's like you're your body or your psyche, your mind's way of saying something important is going to happen. Be here in this moment, focus on this. And, and it does come out as like flop sweats and fear and shaking, but it brings you into that moment in like a really visceral way. So I wonder, I wonder if there's value to those negative voices, because I mean, especially for those of us that grew up with relationships in our life that were antagonistic, like I fight that voice. I'm like, you know what? You are wrong. And I'm going to prove you wrong right now. Mm -hmm. I know. Yeah. I mean, it's something to push off of. I mean, if I go into projects thinking that like, I'm amazing, which I have done, I'm not going <laughs> to do have my egomaniac moment. A lot of times those are not good. And, you know, the, the nervous thing I think is such a really profound point because nervousness is something I really drank through. And I think it's so interesting that nervousness, as uncomfortable it is, as it is, 
It is this adrenaline that sharpens your mind so that when you go out on stage, you have this hyper focus. But the common instinct is to drink your way through it, which will actually do the opposite. It will disinhibit you. It will loosen your focus. So you, you know, you will feel better and you will, I'm not going to say you're necessarily perform worse, but you definitely don't have the same amount of control. It's just such an interesting thing where what feels right actually inhibits the performance. Mm. There was a line I heard, you have to be, you have to have fear to be brave. I like that. That's it. So, okay. So I've got, um, I'm going to ask you to distill all this great wisdom you've been sharing with us in a moment, but before that, and this is the first time I will have ever done this. So you are my, my Guinea pig in, in shilling for unknown sponsors. Uh, we're going to stop for a moment and hear from a sponsor. Three, two, one. And we're back. I have no idea who it was that sponsored our discussion today, but I guess thanks to them because I'm so happy to be here talking with you, Sarah Heppala. All right. Now that I've given you a moment to think about it, if you were to come across a 21-year-old version of yourself in today's world, um, what advice might you give yourself? Well, creatively, you mean? Whatever you think. I mean, you and I are essentially creative people, so that's probably where you're going to start. But personal is fine as well. I just wanted to dress a little differently. (laughs) I just had some wardrobe suggestions and it's a gentle realignment, but I, I thought that was where we could start. (laughs) And then, um, what, by the way, what were they? they? Well, I, when I was 21 years old, I just, I've had a long journey toward being comfortable in my own body. And so I hit puberty really early and it just instilled this kind of hiding in me so that by the time I was 21, I just, I wore these giant baggy hoodies and these long drapey rayon skirts. It was just kind of like a burka from the gap kind of thing. <laughs> and I was just like, why don't the guys like me? Why, why does nobody want to date me? You know, and it's, I had such a force field around my sexuality and around any kind of erotic sense of myself. And then I would get drunk and be like, I'm going to fuck you. You know, like it was just... <laughs> It was really, it was like unintegrated parts of myself. And, you know, I just, I hadn't learned, I hadn't learned, you know, it takes a long time for a lot of us. A lot of 21 year olds are a different way. You know, they're like dressed in like hot pants and halter tops. Right. Um, And I was sort of dressed in the opposite. I was, I was dressed like I was, I had a hazmat suit on. Um, And so but, you know, what I wanted when I was 21 was to be a writer. I thought that it was the most important thing that a person could do. And I think that what I would tell myself is that, you know, you can do that. It's a, it's a beautiful path. It's, it's a, I think it's such a beautiful path. I mean, what I've been able to see and experience and witness and, and feel and to love what I do is so different than the path of a lot of people, but don't fool yourself. It's harder and it's lonelier and it's broker and it's more challenging than you'll ever 
understand. And to think that fame or success is the right end to it is not even that. That's a mirage. And if you get that, because I've only had a taste of that. And it wasn't it. And so, you know, but, but also that there's a voice inside us. Those of us who do this work, that there's a voice inside of us and our work is to listen to that. And at the same time, to listen to the world. How can you do both of those things? To let in these voices outside yourself, but to tune in as sharply and deeply as you can to the voice inside yourself. And I would just tell her to follow the path. I'm so glad I decided to do this. Can you believe what your life would be like if you didn't do this? What would you have done? It's funny right now, I'm my son Max is looking at colleges. And so I'm having this sort of um, uh, ersatz second life, you know, like I'm imagining what that path would have been like, like working for someone, getting a degree. Um, and there's, I, it's not like it's inherently bad. I just can't even imagine like having to, you know, like I, I live for the validation of the faceless crowd or whatever, but if I had to live for the validation of middle management, I just, I don't know, man. I don't know if I could do that. You know what I think you might've been hmm. a teacher, a teacher. I knew you were going to say that. I never would have thought that because I hated school. And I hated teachers. And now every time I do like a create a, a songwriting class or whatever, I'm like, okay, I, I love this. <laughs> I, love I, think, I think you would have been an amazing teacher. Aww. I can even see you going back to St. Mark's or something like that. You know, like it would have been a very different life and, and you would have been the kind of teacher that you wanted to have. Aww, the way that, you know, we write, you write songs, the kind of songs you wanted to hear. I write books that I wanted to find, you know. Well, that's very sweet. I'm so glad. I feel like I could talk to you all day and I hope that we get to be in the same city soon. And I can't wait uh, for whether it's one year or five years from now to to read your next book. I just I think the world of you, Sarah. Thanks so much for joining me on Wheels Off today. Oh, my gosh. Thank you. It's my honor. All right. Thank you so much for listening to Wheels Off. Please be sure to rate and review the show on iTunes. That helps us appear higher in the search results and lets other folks know that it's a cool podcast to listen to. Also, as the kids say, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere else that you listen to shows like this so that you never miss an episode. This has been Wheels Off, and I'm Rhett Miller, encouraging you to create every day. Thanks, y'all. Osiris. Hey, everyone. This is Tuck from Fit for a King in Off-Road Minivan. Every week I bring you fun interviews alongside your favorite metalcore entertainers with my new podcast, Get Tucked. Join me every Monday with bands like Counterparts, Crystal Lake, like Moths to Flames, and many more. We play unsigned and undiscovered bands, deep dive into each artist's history, and of course provide the greatest breakdowns in current metalcore. Tune in to Get Tucked every Monday, out now through Sound Talent Media.